0: Section 25 of The Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Teresa E. Cow. The Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1, by Edmund Burke. Section 25 It was at this time— and in these circumstances that a new administration was formed professing even industriously in this public matter to avoid anecdotes i say nothing of those famous reconciliations and quarrels which weakened the body that should have been the natural support of this administration i run no risk in affirming that surrounded as they were with difficulties of every species Nothing but the strongest and most uncorrupt sense of their duty to the public could have prevailed upon some of the persons who composed it to undertake the king's business at such a time. Their preceding character, their measures while in power, and the subsequent conduct of many of them, I think, leave no room to charge this assertion to flattery. Having undertaken the commonwealth, What remained of them to do? To piece their conduct upon the broken chain of former measures? If they had been so inclined, the ruinous nature of those measures, which began instantly to appear, would not have permitted it. Scarcely had they entered into office when letters arrived from all parts of America, making loud complaints, backed by strong reasons, against several of the principal regulations of the late ministry as threatening destruction to many valuable branches of commerce. These were attended with representations from many merchants and capital manufacturers at home, who had all their interests involved in the sport of lawful trade and in the suppression of every sort of contraband. Whilst these things were under consideration, that conflagration blazed out at once in North America and universal disobedience and open resistance to the Stamp Act, and in consequence, an universal stop to the course of justice and to trade and navigation throughout that great important country, an interval during which the trading interest of England lay under the most dreadful anxiety which it ever felt. The repeal of that act was proposed. It was much too serious a measure and attended with too many difficulties upon every side for the then-ministry to have undertaken it, as some paltry writers have asserted, from envy and dislike to their predecessors in office. As little could it be owing to personal cowardice and dread of consequences to themselves. Ministers timorous from their attachment to place and power, will fear more from the consequences of one court intrigue than from a thousand difficulties to the commerce and credit of their country by disturbances at 3,000 miles distance. From which of these ministers had most to apprehend at that time is known, I presume, universally. Nor did they take that resolution from a want of the fullest sense of of the inconveniences which must necessarily attend a measure of concession from the sovereign to the subject. That it must increase the insolence of the mutinous spirit in America was but too obvious. No great measure indeed, at a very difficult crisis, can be pursued which is not attended with some mischief. None but conceited pretenders in public business will hold any other language and none but weak and unexperienced men will believe them if they should if we were found in such a crisis let those whose bold designs and whose defective arrangements brought us into it answer for the consequences the business of the then ministry evidently was to take such steps not as the wishes of an author or as their own wishes dictated but as the bad situation in which their predecessors had left them absolutely required. The disobedience to this act was universal throughout America. Nothing, it was evident, but the sending a very strong military, backed by a very strong naval force, would reduce the seditious to obedience. To send it to one town would not be sufficient. Every province of America must be traversed and must be subdued. I do not entertain the least doubt but this could be done. We might, I think, without much difficulty have destroyed our colonies. This destruction might be effected, probably in a year or in two at the utmost. If the question was upon a foreign nation where every successful stroke adds to your own power and takes from that of a rival, a just war. With such a certain superiority would be undoubtedly an advisable measure. But four million of debt due to our merchants, the total cessation of a trade annually worth four million more, a large foreign traffic, much home manufacture, a very capital immediate revenue arising from colony imports, indeed the produce of every one of our revenues greatly depending on this trade all these were very weighty accumulated considerations at least well to be weighted before that sword was drawn which even by its victories must produce all the evil effects of the greatest national defeat how public credit must have suffered i need not say if the condition of the nation at the close of our foreign war was what this author represents it such a civil war would have been a bad couch on which to repose our wearied virtue. Far from being able to have entered into new plans of economy, we must have launched into a new sea, I fear a boundless sea, of expense. Such an addition of debt, with such a diminution of revenue and trade, would have left us in no want of a state of the nation to aggravate the picture of our distresses. Our trade felt this to its vitals, and our then ministers were not ashamed to say that they sympathize with the feelings of our merchants. The universal alarm of the whole trading body of England will never be laughed at by them as an ill-grounded or a pretended panic. The universal desire of that body will always have great weight with them in every consideration connected with commerce. Neither ought the opinion of that body to be slighted, notwithstanding the contemptuous and indecent language of this author and his associates in any consideration whatsoever of revenue. Nothing amongst us is more quickly or deeply affected by taxes of any kind than trade. And if an American tax was a real relief to England, no part of the community would be sooner or more materially relieved by it than our merchants. But they well know that the trade of England must be more burdened by one penny raised in America than by three in England. And if that penny be raised with the uneasiness, the discontent, and the confusion of America, more than by ten. If the opinion and wish of the landed interest is a motive, and it is a fair and just one, for taking away a real and large revenue, the desire of the trading interest of England ought to be a just ground for taking away a tax of little better than speculation, which was to be collected by a war which was to be kept up with the perpetual discontent of those who were to be affected by it, and the value of whose produce, even after the ordinary charges of collection, was very uncertain. After the extraordinary, the dearest purchased revenue that ever was made by any nation. These were some of the motives drawn from principles of convenience for that repeal. When the object came to be more narrowly inspected, every motive concurred. These colonies were evidently founded in subservience to the commerce of Great Britain. From this principle, the whole system of our laws concerning them became a system of restriction. A double monopoly was established on the part of the parent country. One, a monopoly of their whole import, which is to be altogether from Great Britain, Two, a monopoly of all their export, which is to be nowhere but to Great Britain, as far as it can serve any purpose here. On the same idea, it was contrived that they should send all their products to us raw and in their first state, and that they should take everything from us in the last stage of manufacture. Were ever a people under such circumstances, that is, a people who were to export raw and to receive manufactured, and this not a few luxurious articles, but all articles, even to those of the grossest, most vulgar, and necessary consumption, a people who were in the hands of a general monopolist, were ever such a people suspected of a possibility of becoming a just object of revenue? all the ends of their foundation must be supposed utterly contradicted before they could become such an object every trade law we have made must have been eluded and become useless before they could be in such a condition the partisans of the new system who on most occasions take credit for full as much knowledge as they possess think proper on this occasion to counterfeit an extraordinary degree of ignorance and in consequence of it, to assert that the balance between the colonies in Great Britain is unknown, and that no important conclusion can be drawn from premises so very uncertain. Now, to what can this ignorance be owing? Were the navigation laws made that this balance should be unknown? Is it from the course of exchange that it is unknown, which all the world knows to be greatly and perpetually against the colonies? Is it from the doubtful nature of the trade we carry on with the colonies? Are not the schemists well apprised that the colonists, particularly those of the northern provinces, import more from Great Britain, ten times more, than they send to return to us? That a great part of their foreign balance is and must be remitted to London? I shall be ready to admit that the colonies ought to be taxed to the revenues of this country, when I know that they are out of debt to its commerce. This author will furnish some ground to his theories and communicate a discovery to the public, if he can show this by any medium. But he tells us that their seas are covered with ships and their rivers floating with commerce. This is true, but it is with our ships that these seas are covered and their rivers float with British commerce. The American merchants are our factors, all in reality, most even in name the americans trade navigate cultivate with english capitals to their own advantage to be sure for without these capitals their plows would be stopped and their ships wind-bound but he who furnishes the capital must on the whole be the person principally benefited the person who works upon it profits on his part too but he profits in a subordinate way as our colonies do that is, as the servant of a wise and indulgent master, and no otherwise. We have all, except the peculium, without which even slaves will not labor. If the author's principles, which are the common notions, be right, that the price of our manufactures is so greatly enhanced by our taxes, then the Americans already pay in that way a share of our impositions. He is not ashamed to assert that France and China may be said on the same principle to bear a part of our charges, for they consume our commodities. Was ever such a method of reasoning heard of? Do not the laws absolutely confine the colonies to buy from us, whether foreign nations sell cheaper or not? On what other idea are all our prohibitions, regulations, guards, penalties, and forfeitures framed? to secure to us not a commercial preference which stands in need of no penalties to enforce it, it finds its own way, but to secure to us a trade which is a creature of law and institution. What has this to do with the principles of a foreign trade which is under no monopoly and which we cannot raise the price of our goods without hazarding the demand for them? None but the authors of such measures could ever think of making use of such arguments. Whoever goes about to reason on any part of the policy of this country with regard to America, upon the mere abstract principles of government, or even upon those of our own ancient constitution, will be often misled. Those who resort for arguments to the most respectable authorities, ancient or modern, or rest upon the clearest maxims drawn from the experience of other states and empires, will be liable to the greatest errors imaginable. The object is wholly new in the world. It is singular. It is grown up to this magnitude and importance without the memory of man. Nothing in history is parallel to it. All the reasonings about it that are likely to be at all solid must be drawn from its actual circumstances. In this new system, a principle of commerce, of artificial commerce, must predominate. This commerce must be secured by a multitude of restraints very alien from the spirit of liberty, and a powerful authority must reside in the principal state in order to enforce them. But the people who are to be the subjects of these restraints are descendants of Englishmen and of a high and free spirit. To hold over them a government made up of nothing but restraints and penalties and taxes in the granting of which they can have no share will neither be wise nor long practicable. People must be governed in a manner agreeable to their temper and disposition, and men of free character and spirit must be ruled with at least some condescension to this spirit and this character. The British colonist must see something which will distinguish him from the colonists of other nations. Those seasonings which infer from the many restraints under which we have already laid America to our right to lay it under still more, and indeed under all manner of restraints, are conclusive, conclusive as to right, but the very reverse as to policy and practice. We ought rather to infer from our having laid the colonies under many restraints that it is reasonable to compensate them by every indulgence that can by any means be reconciled to our interests. We have a great empire to rule, composed of a vast mass of heterogeneous governments, all more or less free and popular in their forms, all to be kept in peace and kept out of conspiracy with one another, all to be held in subordination to this country. While the spirit of an extensive and intricate and trading interest pervades the whole, always qualifying and often controlling, every general idea of constitution and government, it is a great and difficult object. And I wish we may possess wisdom and temper enough to manage it as we ought. Its importance is infinite. I believe the reader will be struck, as I have been, with one singular fact. In the year 1704, but 65 years ago, the whole trade with our plantations was but a few thousand pounds more in the export article and a third less in the import than that which we now carry on with the single island of Jamaica. Total English plantations in 1704, exports 488,265 pounds, imports 814,491 pounds, Jamaica 1767, exports 467,681 pounds, imports 1,243,742 pounds. From the same information, I find that our dealing with most of the European nations is but little increased. These nations have been pretty much at a stance since that time, and we have rivals in their trade. This colony intercourse is a new world of commerce in a manner created. It stands upon principles of its own, principles hardly worth endangering for any little consideration of extorted revenue. The reader sees that I do not enter so fully into this matter as obviously I might. I have already been led into greater lengths than I intended. It is enough to say that before the Ministers of 1765 had determined to propose the repeal of the Stamp Act in Parliament, they had the whole of the American Constitution and commerce very fully before them. They considered maturely, they decided with wisdom, let me add with firmness they resolved as a preliminary to that repeal to assert in the fullest and least equivocal terms the unlimited legislative right of this country over its colonies and having done this to propose the repeal on principles not of constitutional right but on those of expediency of equity of lenity and of the true interests present and future of that great object for which alone the colonies were founded Navigation and commerce. This plan, I say, required an uncommon degree of firmness when we consider that some of those persons who might be of the greatest use in promoting the repeal violently withstood the Declaratory Act and they who agreed with administration in the principles of the law equally made as well as the reasons on which the Declaratory Act itself stood as those on which it was opposed grounds for an opposition to the repeal. If the then ministries resolved first to declare the right, it was not from any opinion they entertained of its future use in regular taxation. Their opinions were full and declared against the ordinary use of such a power. But it was plain that the general reasonings which were employed against that power went directly to our whole legislative right, and one part of it could not be yielded to such arguments without a virtual surrender of all the rest. Besides, If that very specific power of levying money in the colonies were not retained as a sacred trust in the hands of Great Britain, to be used not in the first instance for supply but in the last exigence for control, it is obvious that the presiding authority of Great Britain, as the head, the arbiter, and director of the whole empire, would vanish into an empty name without operation or energy. With the habitual exercise of such a power in the ordinary course of supply, no trace of freedom could remain to America. If Great Britain were stripped of this right, every principle of unity and subordination in the empire was gone forever. Whether all this can be reconciled in legal speculation is a matter of no consequence. It is reconciled in policy, and politics ought to be adjusted not to human reasonings but to human nature, of which the reason is but a part and by no means the greatest part. Founding the repeal on this basis, It was judged proper to lay before Parliament the whole detail of the American affairs, as fully as it had been laid before the Ministry themselves. Ignorance of those affairs had misled Parliament. Knowledge alone could bring it into the right road. Every paper of office was laid upon the table of the two houses. Every denomination of men, either of America or connected with it, by office, by residence, by commerce, by interest, even by injury. Men of civil and military capacity, officers of the revenue merchants manufacturers of every species and from every town in england attended at the bar such evidence never was laid before parliament if an emulation arose among the ministers and members of parliament as the author rightly observes for the repeal of this act as well as for the other regulations it was not on the competent assertions the airy speculations or the vain promises of ministers that it arose It was the sense of Parliament on the evidence before them. No one so much as suspects that ministerial allurements or terrors had any share in it. Our author is very much displeased that so much credit was given to the testimony of merchants. He has a habit of railing at them, and he may, if he pleases, indulge himself in it. It will not do great mischief to that respectable set of men. The substance of their testimony was that their debts in America were very great, that the Americans declined to pay them or to renew their orders, whilst this act continued, that under these circumstances they despaired of the recovery of their debts or the renewal of their trade in the country, that they apprehended a general failure of mercantile credit. The manufacturers deposed to the same general purpose with this addition that many of them had discharged several of their artificers and, if the law and the resistance to it should continue, must dismiss them all. This testimony is treated with great contempt by our author. It must be, I suppose, because it was contradicted by the plain nature of things. Suppose, then, that the merchants had, to gratify this author, given a contrary evidence, and had deposed that while America remained in a state of resistance— whilst four million of debt remained unpaid, whilst the course of justice was suspended for want of stamped paper, so that no debt could be recovered, whilst there was a total stop to trade because every ship was subject to seizure for want of stamped clearances, and while the colonies were to be declared in rebellion and subdued by armed force, that in these circumstances they would still continue to trade cheerfully and fearlessly as before would not such witnesses provoke universal indignation for their folly or their wickedness and be deservedly hooted from the bar would any human faith have given credit to such assertions the testimony of the merchants were necessary for the detail and to bring the matter home to the feeling of the house as to the general reasons they spoke abundantly for themselves Upon these principles was the act repealed, and it produced all the good effect which was expected from it. Quiet was restored. Trade generally returned to its ancient channels. Time and means were furnished for the better strengthening of government there, as well as for recovering, by judicious measures, the affections of the people, had that ministry continued or had a ministry succeeded with dispositions to improve that opportunity. Such an administration did not succeed. Instead of profiting of that season of tranquility, in the very next year they chose to return to measures of the very same nature with those which had been so solemnly condemned, though upon a smaller scale. The effects have been correspondent. America is again in disorder. Not indeed in the same degree as formerly, or anything like it. Such good effects have attended the repeal of the Stamp Act that the colonies have actually paid the taxes, and they have sought their redress upon however improper principles, not in their own violence as formerly, but in the experienced benignity of Parliament. They are not easy indeed, or ever will be so, under this author's schemes of taxation, but we see no longer the same general fury and confusion which attended the resistance to the stamped act. The author may rail at the repeal, and those who proposed it, as he pleases, Those honest men suffer all as obloquy with pleasure, in the midst of the quiet which they have been the means of giving to their country, and would think his praises for their perseverance in a pernicious scheme, a very bad compensation for the disturbance of our peace and the ruin of our commerce. Whether the return to the system 1764 for raising a revenue in America, the discontents which have ensued in consequence of it, the general suspension of the assemblies in consequence of these discontents, the use of the military power, and the new and dangerous commissions which now hang over them will produce equally good effects, is greatly to be doubted. Never, I fear, will this nation and the colonies fall back upon their true center of gravity and natural point of repose until the ideas of 1766 are resumed and steadily pursued. As to the regulations, a great subject of the author's accusation, they are of two sorts, one of a mixed nature of revenue and trade, the other simply relative to trade. With regard to the former, I shall observe that, in all deliberations concerning America, the ideas of that administration were principally these, to take trade as the primary end and revenue, but as a very subordinate consideration. Where trade was likely to suffer, They did not hesitate for an instant to prefer it to taxes, whose produce, at best, was contemptible, in comparison of the object which they might endanger. The other of their principles was to suit the revenue to this object. Where the difficulty of collection from the nature of the country and of the revenue establishment is so very notorious, it was their policy to hold out as few temptations to smuggling as possible, by keeping the duties as nearly as they could on a balance with the risk. On these principles, they made many alterations in the port duties of 1764, both in the mode and in the quantity. The author has not attempted to prove them erroneous. He complains enough to show that he is in an ill-humor, not that his adversaries have done amiss. As to the regulations which were merely relative to commerce, many were then made and they were all made upon this principle that many of the colonies and no some of the most abounding in people were so situated as to have very few means of traffic with this country. It became, therefore, our interest to let them into as much foreign trade as could be given them without interfering with our own, and to secure by every method the returns to the mother country. Without some such scheme of enlargement, it was obvious that any benefit we could expect from these colonies must be extremely limited. Accordingly, many faculties were given to their trade with the foreign plantations and with the southern parts of Europe. As to the confining the returns to this country, administration saw the mischief and folly of a plan of indiscriminate restraint. They applied their remedy to that part where the disease existed and to that only. On this idea, they established regulations far more likely to check the dangerous cladestine trade with Hamburg and Holland than this author's friends or any of their predecessors had ever done. The friends of the author have a method surely a little whimsical in all this sort of discussions. They have made an innumerable multitude of commercial regulations at which the trade of England exclaimed with one voice, and many of which have been altered on the unanimous opinion of that trade. Still they go on, just as before, in a sort of droning panegyric on themselves, talking of these regulations as prodigies of wisdom, and instead of appealing to those who are most affected and the best judges, they turn round in a perpetual circle of their own reasonings and pretenses. They hand you over from one of their own pamphlets to another. See, say they, this demonstrates in the regulations of the colonies. See, this satisfactorily proved in the considerations. By and by, we shall have another, See, for this, the state of the nation? I wish to take another method in vindicating the opposite system. I refer to the petitions of merchants for these regulations, to their thanks when they were obtained, and to the strong and grateful sense they have ever since expressed of the benefits received under that administration. All administrations have in their commercial regulations been generally aided by the opinion of some merchants too frequently by that of a few and those a sort of favorites, they have been directed by the opinion of one or two merchants who were to merit in flatteries and to be paid in contracts, who frequently advise not for the general good of trade, but for their private advantage. During the administration of which this author complains, the meetings of merchants upon the business of trade were numerous in public, sometimes at the house of the Marquise of Rockingham, sometimes at Mr. Dodswell's, sometimes at Sir George Saville's, a house always open to every deliberation favorable to the liberty or the commerce of his country. Nor were these meetings confined to the merchants of London. Merchants and manufacturers were invited from all the considerable towns in England. They conferred with the ministers and active members of Parliament. No private views, no local interests prevailed. Never were points in trade settled upon a larger scale of information. They who attended these meetings well know what ministers they were, who heard the most patiently, who comprehended the most clearly, and who provided the most wisely. Let then this author and his friends still continue in position of the practice of exalting their own abilities, in their pamphlets and in the newspapers. They never will persuade the public. That the merchants of england were in a general confederacy to sacrifice their own interests to those of north america and to destroy the vent of their own goods in favor of the manufactures of france and holland had the friends of this author taken these means of information his extreme terrors of contraband in the west india islands would have been greatly quieted and his objections to the opening of the ports would have ceased he would have learned from the most satisfactory analysis of the west india trade that we have the advantage in every essential article of it, and that almost every restriction on our communication with our neighbors there is a restriction unfavorable to ourselves. Such were the principles that guided and the authority that sanctioned these regulations. No man ever said that in the multiplicity of regulations made in the administration of their predecessors, none were useful. Some certainly were so. And I defy the author to show a commercial regulation of that period which he can prove, from any authority except his own, to have a tendency beneficial to commerce that has been repealed. So far, were that ministry from being guided by a spirit of contradiction or of innovation. The author's attack on that administration for their neglect of our claims on foreign powers is by much the most astonishing instance he has given, or that I believe any man ever did give, of an intrepid effrontery, It relates to the Manila ransom, to the Canada bills, and to the Russian treaty. Could one imagine that these very things which he thus chooses to object to others have been the principal subject of charge against his favorite ministry? Instead of clearing them of these charges, he appears not so much as to have heard of them, but throws them directly upon the administration, which succeeded to that of his friends. End of section 25.